Please be seated. We are in a study of Isaiah chapter 42, the first of the great servant songs, speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ and us in him. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there with me, I'll be reading to you today, starting in verse 1 and down to verse 12, uh, the servant whom the Lord upholds the light to the Gentiles. Let's read together from Isaiah chapter 42, starting in verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord. That is my name and my glory I will not give to another nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you coastlands and you inhabitants of them, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father, such wonderful words. We rejoice and thrill to read them and say, O Lord, may they indeed come to pass just as you have spoken. May you do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Indeed, in these discouraging times, we look to these words with some wonder. We pray that you would reawaken that wonder and open our eyes to your good purposes in the earth, that we who have fled to Christ for refuge might indeed have a certain hope. And it's in him that we pray. Amen. Uh, surely every Christian feels the, the weight of evil in the world today, don't we? The gospel is not making any great inroads in our culture. Wickedness seems to be entrenched and exalted on every side. What can the righteous do seems to be the universal cry. In Dante's vision of hell, there is a, um, uh, an inscription over the entrance, and it reads, Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. To be without hope is the essence of hell itself in so many ways. And so the Lord never leaves his people without hope. Never. 
and especially in times of deep darkness. Even at the very fall of man, as Warren pointed out, the promise of God came that the seed of the woman will bruise the seed of the serpent. There was never a moment that God's people were without hope. God has made a thousand other promises, of course, which have come to pass, many of them in history, yet many of the greatest things, of course, have yet to be fulfilled in Jesus, in whom all the promises of God are yea and amen. But by one scholar's count, some 27% of the Bible, by verses, is predictive prophecy, some 8,000 verses in the Bible. Uh, why? Why would God spend so much time telling his people about things that would happen, things that they might likely never see? Well, of course, God would have us live now in the light and hope of what he will surely bring to pass in history, and he would have us know that despite discouraging present appearances, we may still have full confidence in him and that he has good things to accomplish in the earth. And therefore, from the very beginning... God establishes the pattern of promise and fulfillment. He tells man what he will do ahead of time, that man may learn to exercise in him faith and hope, and even now to live accordingly. Our God is a promising God, and we need to have full confidence in what he has said, that he will bring it to pass. As he has said, so he will do. I bring this to you because in the 8th century, Isaiah prophesied bad news. There was going to be a fierce judgment coming upon Jerusalem, one that would end with the exile of the southern kingdom to Babylon. And those were going to be miserable, miserable days. In fact, he doesn't hesitate to use the most severe language to talk about the judgments to come. Already in that 8th century B.C., it was a time of spiritual decline in the nation. There was a great deal more discouragement to come in king after king in the days ahead before that judgment fell. But judgment was not going to be the final word for God's people, and so this part of Isaiah then gives the rest of the story. Judgment will not be the last word. Hope, salvation, glory, these things are yet to come. And here, in what's been, what's been called some of the most beautiful poetry in the Hebrew language, we find four so-called servant songs that give a wonderful sketch of the ministry of the Messiah, as we've seen. Matthew quotes this very passage at length to demonstrate that all these hopes are fulfilled, are being fulfilled in Jesus. In that 12th chapter of Matthew, in context, we find that the Messiah had been demonstrating God's astonishing power, but, but not in military victory, as so many of them had expected, but by forgiving sins and healing the needy. And he taught the true meaning of the Sabbath early in chapter 12, and the Pharisees were angry and they sought to kill Jesus, and he quietly retired. He walked away. He withdrew. Jesus then asked those on whom he had done his mighty miracles that he not be made known. This, this behavior was not at all what they were expecting from their coming king. But Matthew quotes this very passage to demonstrate that the Messiah was doing just as God had said. He quotes it at length to show that the Messiah was to be both tender and triumphant, 
both gentle with the weak and victorious in the earth. He doesn't come with the weapons of this world. Now, the Jewish people, for their part, weren't inspect expecting a Messiah that would bring justice to the nations, of course, but they expected him to do it in a very different way. This song, therefore, announces and describes the king's manner and methods, which are utterly different from those of the rulers of this world, not even raising his voice, not even crying out in the street. And we considered the meaning of the bruised reed as we are compared to things that are both weak and wounded. We considered the meaning of the smoking wick and how in both cases Jesus is the redeemer of the poor and the needy. Well, we are bruised, but he will not be discouraged. Same word in the original poem, remember. We are smoking as wicks, but he will not fail. Same word. Our confidence and our victory are in him. Now, up to this point, I've been presenting some of the great thoughts of Richard Sibbs in his classic devotional work, The Bruised Reed, and... Uh, making the application as he did specifically for the weak, for the weak believer, for the help and encouragement of those bruised reeds. And I uh, have loved that, but I've completed that now. And before I move on, uh, I'd like to consider this passage as I think it is originally given as an encouragement to the downcast and the weary in the world. It was originally given, as I say, to a people in a time of decline to give hope to the godly in the midst of the gathering darkness. And I hope that this message and prophecy will be heard again today in that light. So let's consider from this passage, first the man and then the mission quickly. And then I'd like you to see why it's so important that we have this hope today. Briefly then the man and his mission. First the man. In the passage, the servant of the Lord is clearly a royal or messianic figure, as even the critical scholars have had to admit. I had to read some this week. In the previous chapter, Israel, God's servant, had stumbled, and uh, the nation, always being considered under the headship of her king, had not been fulfilling God's will. But here, a new king is introduced who will redeem and right not only his own people, but the nations of the world as well. But the emphasis here you see is specifically in the headship of the king, a royal prophecy. And uh, critics might explain some of this language away. Well, serving could mean this, and chosen could mean this, and upheld could mean that, and spirit could mean this. Okay, but all this together, all these points taken together, clearly points to God's coming king. He is the chosen one. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. And you remember how God introduced the first kings of Israel in practically the same words, Saul and David. Behold him whom the Lord has chosen. Yes, this is the king whom the Lord upholds. As King David said of himself in Psalm 63, your right hand upholds me. Here is the one anointed with the Spirit. I have put my Spirit upon him, which again reminds us of both Saul and David, but especially the coming Messiah, whom we are told receives the Spirit without measure, see Isaiah 61 and so forth. And through this chosen servant, in whom the Lord delights, 
The nations will learn justice, and the coastlands will wait for his law, a kingly role. So I, I, I don't take this servant as Israel, and as I say, even unbelieving and critical scholars have recently had to admit this is a royal, this is a royal prophecy. This is speaking about the hope that comes to the people through the Lord's anointed king. And throughout the New Testament, these servant songs, of course, find their fulfillment in Jesus. It was no fanciful misreading that the apostles did. They read these servant songs, and of course, these things speak of Jesus. I just want to explain to you the nature of some of the conflict in case you're reading other things. Well, the mission is also given here, not just the man, but the mission. It's a mission of justice. Uh, That's front and center of bringing light in the darkness and opening blind eyes, a biblical metaphor for both salvation and the knowledge of God, which are joined together, And it's a mission to turn the nations of the earth to the Lord in praise. And some beautiful poetry associated with that. Uh, Injustice being righted, the the, the, uh, nations returning to the Lord and giving him praise. That's what the king is coming to do. That's his mission. And to be clear, injustice is more than a political dysfunction as one wrote, it is a spiritual evil, a denial of God. It's this injustice especially that that Jesus is coming to write. Well, at the center of this passage then, we have seen people, weak and broken, men and women, boys and girls, every bit as wounded and weak as bruised reeds, and Christ for his part is not going to so much as raise his voice or cry out on the streets. This is how tenderly he works. You know, revolutions like this are typically advanced with blood, but the only blood that is to be spilt in this revolution is Christ's own. However, to be clear, there will be conflict. Matthew, as we saw last time, calls attention to this by translating the passage, uh, he will send forth justice to victory, a particularly strong word often translated cast out, uh, ekbalo, some of you know, but in this case, thrust forward. Uh, Victory is not going to come easily or all at once, as seen in the word till in verse 4. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and so forth. So we can have confidence in this mission, though, because in the passage, it's being decreed by the maker of heaven and earth. The one who gives you breath is going to do it. If you're able to breathe, he's able to accomplish his purpose. The kingdom of darkness is upheld by ignorance and error, but the Messiah is coming as a light to the Gentiles, verse 6, to open blind eyes, verse 7, and the scope of his mission is universal. Notice these words that reoccur, nations, earth, coastlands and isles, villages and wilderness. Of course, many people today think that the world is hopeless. Well, so did they. And this prophecy is given to establish the fact that despite the present decline, a king is coming, the hope of all the earth, and his reign will be glorious in the nations. Now I'd like to handle an objection that has probably already occurred to you before I consider some practical matters that I want to emphasize because I think it's so important that you gain the hope that is held out here and not say, well, but but, 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 you're applying this passage incorrectly or to the wrong age or something like that. Okay. Here's the the doctor of the passage. Now, let me see if I can handle your objection. 
This passage, uh, the servant song, continues uh, for a while, uh, is quoted both in Matthew and in Acts in applying to the present age. Paul told the Jews who rejected him in Antioch, it's necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, he says, us, I have set you, plural, as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for my salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as have been appointed to eternal life believe. These servant songs, their prophecies, this is for now. The king and the people under him are considered together. Yes, the king brings this and his people. Uh, So Jesus was able to say, as we prayed earlier, now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And John wrote, the Son of God has been manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. God had promised Abraham that promise that through his seed, whom we know is Jesus from Galatians 3, all the families of the earth should be blessed. Daniel prophesied of that kingdom of his that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him in everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And the Lord joins that prophecy, the prophecies of kingdom, to the fulfillment of his church. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. Uh, To be clear, God still has plans yet for Israel according to the flesh, as I certainly believe. Don't get me wrong, but I don't want to get off subject. The point is, these things are even now being fulfilled. This is for this age. Micah describes the universal glory of the Messiah's grain. He'll be great to the ends of the earth. He'll bring peace to the nations. Isaiah and Habakkuk say that the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of God's glory as the waters cover the sea. And the prophet Isaiah has many passages about how the Messiah will be God's salvation to the ends of the earth, how kings and queens of the Gentiles will promote his cause, and the nations will come and worship the Lord, and so forth. And I'm being extremely selective. I picked some of the cream, but there's a lot of verses on this. All authority in heaven and earth is given to Jesus, and therefore we are to go and make disciples of all nations. It's happened. This is for us. He must reign until his enemies are made the footstool of his feet. 1 Corinthians 15, Hebrews 10. And our labor, therefore, is not in vain in the Lord. So, to be clear, uh, this is not without conflict. Uh, This is not all at once. In fact, the process, if you'd like to see it in action, the process by which the kingdom grows into the nations is described in the book of Acts with ensuing afflictions, persecutions, hardships, sufferings for God's people. That is the experience of every age. The Apostle John spoke of himself as the companion in the suffering and kingdom that are ours in Jesus. The suffering and kingdom joined together. Paul called on Timothy to be a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel. That is to say, the way it advances is the way that it began, with suffering. But this suffering is unto the salvation of the nations. 
The 24 elders sing, You were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Uh, a view of uh, the, uh, the, the final victory in which men out of every part of the nations of this earth, redeemed to God by the blood of Jesus, give him everlasting praise. It's going to happen. You say, well, well, Pastor, what if I'm pre-millennial? Great, so was Charles Spurgeon. And if you want to be one, I want you to be one just like him. I could give you a great many references, but here's one that encourages me from time to time, one of his comments on a psalm. David was not a believer, he writes, in the theory that the world will grow worse and worse and that this dispensation will wind up with general darkness and idolatry. Earth's sun is to go down amid tenfold night if some of our prophetic brethren are to be believed. Not so do we expect, but we look for a day when the dwellers in all lands shall learn righteousness shall trust in the Savior, shall worship thee alone, O God, and shall glorify thy name. The modern notion has greatly dampened the zeal of the church for missions, and the sooner it's shown to be unscriptural, the better for the cause of God. It neither consorts with prophecy, nor honors God, nor inspires the church with ardor. Far hence be it driven. And he concludes with a prayer, O Spirit of God, bring back thy church to a belief in the gospel. Bring back her ministers to preach it once again with the Holy Ghost and not striving after wit and learning. Then we shall see thine arm made bare, O God, in the sight of all the people, and the myriads shall be brought to rally around the throne of God and the Lamb. The gospel must succeed. It shall succeed. It cannot be prevented from succeeding. A multitude that no man can number must be saved. Well said. So, you want to be premillennial? Good. Be one like old Charles Spurgeon. Here in Isaiah, we find the man and his mission. The mission that is being fulfilled in you and me. You and me. We also are appointed as a light for the nation. Just as Jesus said, uh, I'm the light of the world. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, you're the light of the world. A very uh, light that we reflect from him. Jesus will bring the light of God's salvation and is bringing it even now. To every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, he shall send forth justice to victory, writes Matthew in quoting this, and his, in his name the nations, or Gentiles, will trust. They will. But of course, I'm not here to give you a prophecy conference, I'm here to give you some instruction, therefore. I mentioned earlier how this passage is being fulfilled both in the king and in his people, which are considered together in this passage. Uh, the Lord has com commanded us, I've set y'all as a light to the Gentiles and so forth. Um, in this light, we are not only to see, but to shine. So practically speaking now, if what I've said is true, what does this mean for us? <sighs> All right. Everyone with me so far? What does this mean if what I've said is true? I hope you appreciate I've reduced it to six. First, evangelism and missions. Taking them together. It means that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. And that passages like this are given and have given for profound hope in the darkness 
darkest of times. If this is God's purpose, then we need to get going. Prophecy is given on a need-to-know basis. God didn't tell the people on the border of Moab and the promised land all about the great things that were going to happen, the wonders of the land and so forth, so they could have prophecy conferences in Moab. He told them so that they would take courage and get going in Canaan. So it is that after five and a half years of pioneer mission work in India, without a single convert, the father of modern missions, as he's called, William Carey, wrote to his friend, Samuel Pierce, the work to which God has set his hands will infallibly prosper. Christ has begun to besiege this ancient and strong fortress and will assuredly carry it. Not one convert, but this was his persevering power. Finally, after seven years, when Krishna Pal converted to Christianity, his first, his only convert, he wrote, he was only one, but a continent was coming behind him. The divine grace, which challenged one Indian's heart, could obviously change a hundred thousand. You think how much boldness it takes to get on a boat and to go to a dark land where they hate the gospel. Well, the only Christians they know about are the ones that are colonizing and exploiting the people. Why would anyone do that? Because this is God's program. Think of David Livingston, traveled 29,000 miles, most of it on foot. He wrote, a minister who had not seen so much pioneer service as I would have been shocked to see so little effect produced. But time must be given to allow the truth to sink into the dark mind and produce its effect. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That is enough. We can afford to work in faith. Work in faith. For omnipotence is pledged to fulfill the promise. Another day he writes, a quiet audience today, the seed being sown, the least of all seeds now, but it will grow a mighty tree. It is, as it were, a small stone cut out of a mountain, but it will fill the whole earth. Referring, of course, to Daniel's prophecy in the Lord's parable. Another day, we work for a glorious future which we are not destined to see. We are only morning stars shining in the dark, but the glorious morn will break. Well, obviously this passage has a great deal to do with evangelism and missions and has inspired the boldest of pioneers and the weakest of men to continue to persevere with no fruit for years because they saw in these promises better days ahead for the people they served. Secondly, right at the heart of this passage is justice. Justice. Illustrating again with William Carey, arriving in India, 1802, shortly after, sorry, shortly after his arrival in 1802, shortly after his arrival. He began work not only in the translation of the scriptures and the preaching of the word, but as he was one of the very few people there who knew anything about the justice of God in that wicked land, he gave himself as he was able, he and his team, to correcting the manifest injustices 
of that great land. He began in 1802 an investigation on the commission of the governor into religious killings in Hindu India, and he and his team were soon able to obtain the prohibition of the ritual killing of children. Babies were thrown annually into the Ganges uh, on the island of Sagur as a holy festival. You say, well, isn't that their religion? Carey was greatly provoked when he arrived and saw what was happening to the infants. He says, it is our responsibility, as we have opportunity, to bring this to the attention of the higher authorities and bring this to an end. After a lifelong battle in 1826, he was able to obtain the prohibition of sati, the incineration of widows, who, as you probably know, used to be thrown on the funeral pyre of their husbands. That was their religion. We shouldn't be colonial, should we? His heart burned for justice. This is murder. Carey was just as outspoken in his opinions of slavery and the caste system, which he, in no case, wanted to be brought into the church and didn't mind saying so, even when it hurt his missionary efforts. He opposed the Holodanish mission and the Society for the Propagation of Christian Knowledge, which had retained the caste system, even in the Lord's Supper, where you sat when you came to the table. That was all done by caste. Carey insisted that the convert break with the caste system before he could be baptized. For in the church there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave or three, Parthian, Scythian, male, female. We are one in Christ. He insisted that the injustice of that system have no place in the church. Or let me bring some things a little more up to date. After rehearsing some of the political interests of Christians during the 2008 presidential election, John MacArthur wrote in a book I recently finished, Our end times theology tells us that until Christ returns, nothing can or will fix this crumbling world system. Why are we expending so much energy? Our theology tells us to withdraw because it won't do any good. We're doomed to injustice. You know how much I love MacArthur. But the Word of God tells us to engage because Christ will not fail or discourage until he has established justice in the earth. He will send it forth unto victory. And even the coastlands will wait for his law. And that's why we engage even when we are losing, even in the 2008 election, even in dark days, because it is a struggle unto victory. It is suffering unto justice, and suffering is the law of progress. In his dedication of his evening exercises to William Wilberforce, his friend William Jay wrote, The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. If we are not to be weary in well-doing, we need not only exhortation, but hope, which is at once the most active as well as the most cheerful principle. Nothing so unnerves energy and slackens diligence as despondency. Wilberforce, young member of parliament, he, he needed much encouragement. His health would soon be broken. His fights would last so, so long. He was a lone voice for a long time, but justice had its day. It obviously has a great deal to do with evangelism and missions. It has a great deal to do with justice, righteousness from the top down. It has to do with light, 
We'll take this as education or the knowledge of God and his word and his salvation. Light is coming to those who sit in the darkness of death. There was a uh, promoter of a, uh, at the time, a new and a very pessimistic system of theology that looked at the future with hopelessness. The Lord was coming soon anyway, he said. Middle of the 19th century, his colleague wrote, if a youth had a natural aptitude for mathematics, and he asked Darby, ought he to give himself to the study in the hope that he might be able to diffuse some serviceable knowledge of it or possibly even enlarge the boundaries of the science? Darby would say that, well, such a purpose was very proper if entertained by a worldly man. Good to study math, engineering, whatnot, if you're worldly. Let the dead bury their dead, he would say, and let the world study the things of the world. Such studies cannot be eagerly followed by the Christian except when he yields to unbelief. The times are at hand. The world is on the precipice. It's about to fall off. No Christian can do anything but give himself to, the, to making converts. Comparing this to Alexander Campbell, who established several Christian schools in India with a long-term view, not only of teaching a future continent to read, uh, future Christians to read, but educating the leaders in India about the will of God. Writing to India, to the, from India rather, to the Free Church Missionary Conference to explain how God was working. Christian education, he says, more than anything else, has prepared a large body of the people for a wide rejection of Hinduism and for a reception of Christ as the Savior. Should it please God graciously to pour his spirit from on high in this land? All history proclaims that this is the way in which God generally works. There are long seasons of preparation, he wrote. The truth is spread. Obstacles are removed out of the way. And then God comes in his power and turns the people to himself. A nation is born in a day. A little one becomes a thousand, and a small one a strong nation. This is why we continue to maintain our, our hospital, our Christian schools, our training of young women, often um, some of the most vulnerable people in Pakistan, uh, because we recognize that there is a long season for the truth to be spread, for the work to be done, the translations to be made, the knowledge of God, and God from time to time, as we've seen in history, as he points out, is pleased to do a, ma a mighty work often in a day to preserve the glory to himself. The pessimistic John Nelson Darby, on the other hand, wrote, the importance of our doctrine is that it totally forbids all working for earthly objects distant in time. Darby says, why are we spending all this money on infrastructure when the end is near? Uh, a tremendous change happened in foreign missions as a result of this theology. The infrastructure by, by which the, the schools, the, the, the uh, mission stations, the translations, the, the, uh, 
uh, hospitals, the, 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 uh, the things that were tri typically the engine of Christian advance in large, dark nations, these things came to an end, and there, and there came a, a rapid, like, blitzkrieg through the nation to be able to save as many people as possible because the Lord is coming. Well, education, light. Carrie's team says, uh, sorry, D Darby said, we can't work for our earthly objects distant in time. Carrie wrote, we work for a glorious future we are not destined to see. You see the great difference. You see the difference this hope makes. Either there's no hope, we should do nothing like that, or there is a great hope, we need to do great things. Carrie's team, as a matter of fact, small group that they were, they founded 45 free schools with about 10,000 pupils of all social class classes, several newspapers in English, and the native languages to further the education of the Indian people and to bring light in the darkness. He began Sarampore College, modeled after the University of Copenhagen and Kiel, as well as India's first university, still to this day, there. The Agricultural Society of India, his team founded in 1820, did a great deal to improve India's farming system. They weren't there primarily for that, but they said, look, we can do it. We, we need to do something to bring light into this dark land as the people are dying, illiterate, with no knowledge of Christ. Can we not help them read, not die, learn the word? Light. Fourth, prayer. Prayer. Prophecies are to be prayed. These things are to, as we just sang in Psalm 67, become our prayers. Let it be. When we pray, thy kingdom come, what do we mean? Thy will be done in earth? What do we mean? Most 21st century North American Christian believers have virtually no hopes or expectations like this anyway. We may still pray on earth as it is in heaven, but they don't necessarily believe it. They may quote, all authority has been given to me and go make disciples of all nations, but they don't think that all nations are going to believe it, not in this age. What about you? When we pray, we need to have the biblical purposes in mind that we may be able to pray his word back to him. These will furnish us with great prayers, nation-shaking prayers, right? The kinds of prayers that bring light in the midst of great darkness. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, a great preacher of these things, by the way, he wrote a pam pamphlet based on these prophecies of Isaiah, encouraging the whole church and all of its parts to begin a great season of prayer. Ca William Carey carried that, his treasured copy with him to India. It became the impetus for a great number of missionary movements later on. Prayer. Um, fifth, daily life. Daily life. These prophecies, as I say, are given on a need-to-know basis. What kinds of great uh, endeavors are we going to have? Even should we, what, what should we say about tomorrow? You'll know that uh, it used to be very popular among Christians to use the phrase of James, if the Lord will, or Lord willing, we'll do this. Now, you might know that in the middle of the 19th century, as the new theology came in, that was changed. If the Lord will, change to if the Lord tarry. 
And uh, Murray said, more and more, the persuasion gained ground that tarrying would not last long. And a suggestion that several years might yet intervene even was then disapproved as an unworthy attitude concerning the great hope. Well, dear friends, uh, it makes a practical difference in daily life. If the Lord will, if the Lord tarry, what's the difference? Well, Carey, for his part, William Carey in India, he adopted the motto, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. He had a vision that would take generations to fulfill, expressing, I think, the true spirit of this prophecy and the church in its best days. And even though, as I say, sacrifice is always the law of progress, it certainly was in India, even to this day, the Lord has been pleased to advance his cause among the nations to those who have undertaken these great matters in faith. In a few minutes, our missions committee will be meeting, talking about whom we are able to support. And if we are to be true to our mission, we must, in our way, as we have opportunity, aspire to push onward the progress of God's salvation and just rule in the earth. All right. What practical difference does it make? Evangelism and missions, justice, education, prayer, daily life. Finally, hopelessness. Hopelessness. Surely there's somebody here who doesn't have this hope or any other. You're without God and without hope in the world. The eyes are blind and the spirit is dead. Perhaps, uh, I said it last time, dead people often don't even know that they're dead. We come to this passage to find your hope, the hope of your life, your light, your salvation, that Jesus has been appointed and sent as a covenant, that is to say, as a sure promise from God to the world, that you might find in him his light and salvation forever. There is a winning side. When all tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations are gathered around the throne, giving praise to the Lamb, will you be one of those? You are to behold God's chosen servant. He tells you to in the passage that you today might find hope. Will you do that? You would be saved, God would be glorified, and we would all rejoice. It's a very practical passage if it gives you eternal life today. In conclusion, before anybody had left to go anywhere, there were very discouraging times. Uh, Unitarianism and false religion had spread, had taken so many of the churches and universities. In the fall of 1796, a Scottish minister named David Bogue rose to tell the first meeting of the London Missionary Society all the reasons that people were saying that it would be foolish for them to start a society to engage in world evangelism. First, he says, some say this work is so hard, we couldn't possibly hope for success. What are we doing? Second, 
They say the time hasn't come. The millennium is probably still hundreds of years away. Why don't we wait? Third, the church at the present moment is in no state to succeed in the work. Fourth, the governments of the nations and all their might will oppose and defeat our plans. Fifth, the heathen of the world are currently so opposed to the Christian faith that at the moment we have no chance of success. Sixth, how and where could we even find the people to do so difficult a work as this? Seventh, do you know how much this will cost? Eighth, we need to wait until God opened the door of providence. Nine, what right do we have to interfere with the religion of other nations? And finally, number ten, there are plenty of heathen right here at home, and we need to start with them. I'm sure you could have listed plenty more reasons not to undertake the work to advance the gospel in the world. Those were very important discouragements, and there were discouragements everywhere Everywhere they looked, he gave his rebuttal to those things. But on the same day, Roland Hill addressed the first meeting on, the, on this text. Matthew twenty four fourteen. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then the end shall come. And he proceeded to give an overview of God's great power and purposes in the world and how they've been unfolding from start to finish. And then he made this appeal to his hearers. We have now to encourage ourselves from the promises and prophecies of the word of God, of the glory that shall be revealed. The text itself gives blessed encouragement to our expectations that this gospel shall be preached in all the world as a witness for all nations. And then the end shall come. And what may... And what may we not yet hope for when the Lord himself has said to his beloved son, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. He called them to believe God despite all that they could see, despite all that was arrayed against them. And he concludes his sermon magnificently. Why should we be cast down at the prospect of difficulties in the way? Let our whole dependence be placed in the wisdom, power, and grace of the Lord Jesus. That is the one that will not fail. The kingdom of Jesus Christ shall be considerably enlarged, both at home and abroad, and continue to increase till the knowledge of God cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, quoting the prophet, and we shall account it through eternity, the highest honor conferred on us during our pilgrimage on earth that we appeared here and gave our names among the founders of the missionary society. A little Henry V speech for them, right? Well, they formed the society. In the next several years, no less than 30 missionary societies were founded in Britain alone. And the driving power was this prophetic hope that we read about today, front and center again and again, the hope for the nations, as it was preached at the inauguration of the London Missionary Society, 1795, at the meeting of the New York Missionary Society, 1797, at the meeting of the Glasgow Missionary Society in 1802, again and again, proclaimed from the prophets. It was proclaimed in the universities and in the seminaries. It was proclaimed from the pulpit of what's now our largest church in our denomination, First Presbyterian in Columbia. As James Henley Thornwell said, if the church could be aroused to a deeper sense of the glory that awaits her, 
She would enter in with a warmer spirit into the struggles that are before her. Hope would inspire ardor. She would even now rise from the dust and, like an eagle, plume her pinions for loftier heights than she's yet taken. And what she lacks and what every individual Christian lacks is faith. Faith in her sublime calling, in her divine resources, in the presence and efficacy of the Spirit that dwells in her. Faith in the truth. Faith in Jesus. And faith in God. With such a faith, there would be no need to speculate about the future. That would speedily reveal itself. It's our unfaithfulness, our negligence, and unbelief, our low and carnal aims that are hindering the chariot of the Redeemer, the bridegroom, who cannot come until the bride has made herself ready. Let the church then be in earnest after greater holiness in her own members and in faith and love to undertake the conquest of the world. And she will soon settle the question of whether her resources are competent to change the face of the earth. A bruised reed he shall not break. Smoking flax he shall not quench until he sends forth justice to victory. Brothers and sisters, the Gentiles shall trust in his name. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you might help us to grasp the joy and the wonder of such words spoken by our Lord in the wake of such discouragements among the nations. May we see the glory dawning. In your light, may we see light. To know you and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, is to have life eternal. And there's still so much we confess that we don't know, but this we know, that though we were blind, yet now we see. May that saving light and life be spread abroad throughout the world. May those who sit in darkness see a great light. Our Father, you have said that in the day of your Messiah, the deaf shall hear the words of this book, the eyes of the blind shall see out of their darkness. And now, may the Gentiles come to your light and even kings to the brightness of your rising. We pray that you would give us a sight of what is yours alone to give, that we might see again him who is the light of the world in all of his glory among the...